service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Did you ever sit and ponder, sit and wonder, sit and think why we're here and what this life is all about? It's a problem that has driven many brainy men to drink. It's the weirdest thing they've tried to figure out. The stories about Phil Hartman are insane. He once held Buddy Miles' kick drum pedal together with his bare hands in the middle of a Jimi Hendrix set. He designed album covers for the bands Poco and America, as well as the logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And he did those things as a card-carrying member of the peace and love movement, a movement that was so infamously disrupted by the Manson family, a ragtag group of hippies gone evil that just so happened to include one of Phil Hartman's former friends from high school, a friend who would later attempt to assassinate an American president, a friend who helped steer sunny California into an age of darkness, a darkness that for Phil Hartman led to secrets, blackmail, guns, and ultimately a murder-suicide. But before his tragic death at the age of 49, Phil Hartman made great television and films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of George M. Cohen performing Life's a Funny Proposition After All in 1911. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. And why would I play you that specific slice of Lizard King cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on May 28, 1998. And that was the day that the darkness finally caught up to Phil Hartman in the master bedroom of his sunny California home. On this episode, peace and love, darkness and light, secrets, blackmail, and Phil Hartman. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season nine, Hollywoodland. May 28, 1998. Ron Douglas noted the time, just after midnight, the hour when the sun is farthest below the horizon, the darkest hour, pitchiest of pitch black. Ron's friend, Bryn Hartman, had been hanging out in his Studio City home for about two hours now, and they had a few beers, and they shot the shit. But it was a weeknight, and it was late, and Ron worried it was too late. Bryn's husband, Phil Hartman, asked only two things of Ron whenever Bryn dropped by for a visit. One, don't let her stay out too late, and two, if she asks for cocaine, don't give it to her. The second request was easy enough. These days, Ron was cleaned up. It had been 15 years since he and Bryn were drug buddies bouncing around from one Hollywood audition to the next. 
He knew it was different for Bryn. He knew that she struggled. Not just to stay on the wagon and stay off the hard stuff, but she struggled with the hard truth that her acting career was never going to take off. That's a hard struggle. Then she struggled with the fact that her lot in life was to be the wife of a universally loved comedian and the mother of his two children, and never anything more. Ron also knew that Bryn and Phil's relationship wasn't the hunky-dory, squeaky-clean kind that played out in the press. He knew, like all people and all relationships, Bryn and Phil had their ups and downs. And Ron was sympathetic. He knew what it was like to watch your dreams fade away. His own acting career hadn't panned out like he thought it would. His current life as a stuntman was neither glitzy nor glamorous. But although he was sympathetic, he was also tired. And to be honest, he didn't want to piss off Phil. So it was time for Bryn Hartman to go home. At around 12.45 a.m., Bryn left Ron's place and drove her Jeep Cherokee back to the Encino Ranch-style house she shared with her husband. A few hours later, at 3.25 a.m., Ron's phone rang, and it was Bryn. She said Phil wasn't home, that he left her a note that she found when she arrived home, a note which read, I'm going out for the night. I'll be back. Love you. Bryn didn't want to be alone. She wanted to go back to Ron's. Ron dismissed the idea outright. It was the middle of the night. Her nine-year-old son and six-year-old daughter were sleeping in their beds. This wasn't even up for discussion. Hang up the phone and go to sleep. Ron took his own advice, or he tried to. Barely 20 minutes passed when suddenly his doorbell was ringing nonstop and there was banging at the front door. Ron stumbled out of bed, more irritated than frightened. He walked downstairs and looked through the front window. Bryn was standing outside, long sleeve t-shirt, pajama pants, socks, but no shoes. Prada purse in her hands. Ron opened the door. What the hell was she doing? What was she thinking? And where were the kids? He could smell the booze on her breath. She was drunk, maybe high, not weed. Weed was Phil's bag, but not hers. Maybe she took some pills and maybe something stronger. Ron was pissed, but he brought her inside. She was crying. Her words came out slurred and frantic. It sounded to Ron like she said something about killing Phil. He paid it no mind. Bryn wasn't the killing kind. She and Phil probably got into another fight and maybe it got a little physical. Plus, she was clearly out of it. She kept rambling. Then she started to rummage. Her hands dug around in her Prada purse for something. Ron didn't know what. And then she pulled it out. She bobbled it between her fingers and quickly lost her grip and it fell to the ground and Ron's eyes went wide. A Smith & Wesson, 38. What the hell was this? I told you, she said, desperate now for Ron to believe her. I killed Phil. Two decades earlier, in the mid-1960s, no one carried a gun in their purse. No one even carried a purse. At least not the hippies for whom love was free and peace was plentiful. California would provide. California was sun, surf, and S-E-X sex. Salty waves, sweet leaf. Rock and roll crackling through a shitty AM radio while you bawled in the back of a woody. If being a hippie or a peacenik or whatever you called it meant girls and drugs and music and freedom, then Phil Hartman was on board. Literally on board. When he was out riding a breaker in the Pacific. And when he wasn't, 
getting baked in the two-room cabana in Malibu previously occupied, allegedly, by beach boy Brian Wilson while praying to God that Uncle Sam didn't call his number would do just fine. These amenities came courtesy of Phil's brother, John, who managed Rockin' Foo, a local band that mined the psychedelic-slash-garage-slash-country-rock vibe that was quickly becoming the Golden State's calling card. The roadie gig that John provided meant more sex, more drugs, and more rock and roll for Brother Phil. He carried things like amplifiers, guitars, and road cases, and he also held shit together. He was the glue. Long before that nickname was bestowed upon him by his fellow castmates in the hallowed halls of Studio 8H. To a kid from Ho-Hum, Brantford, Ontario, the middle child of eight who had to hustle to be heard or even to eat, California was an easy trip. It was ground zero for the movement, and the movement didn't just provide, it blew Phil's mind. Or maybe it just rattled his skull. Phil experienced the latter at a Jimi Hendrix gig when he watched from the sidelines as Buddy Miles' kick pedal kept getting separated from the kick drum. Phil's roadie instincts kicked in. He was the glue personified. Within seconds, Phil was on stage, on his knees, sandwiched between the drum stool and the kick drum, holding the pedal in place while Buddy bashed away on the kit. It was bliss, all of it. The ringing in his ears after that Hendrix gig and the brushes with Eric Burden at the Fillmore and with Janis Joplin at the Palm Beach International Raceway. The music, the grass, the pussy, it seemed like it would never end. And then, it did. Last night, another bizarre murder in Los Angeles, the second in two days. Roman Polanski, the film director and husband of Sharon Tate, called newsmen to a hotel in Hollywood today, and there he made a long, emotional statement. Told a good deal of what had been on his mind since his pregnant wife and four others were killed at their home on August 8th. 21-year-old Susan Atkins is involved in still another murder case. She appeared in the Santa Monica City courtroom this morning to enter a plea in a trial stemming from the July 31st murder of 34-year-old Gary Hinman. Los Angeles police have placed Miss Atkins, also known as Sadie Glutz, at the scene of the Tate murder. Sadie Taking into account the published report in the Los Angeles Times, the story that Susan Atkins told about what allegedly happened that night after the murder at the Tate House, we drove from Cielo Drive at the base of Benedict Canyon up here we found some uh, trousers and some uh, shirts appeared to be turtleneck shirts or something uh, dark in color. Did they appear to have any stains on them? This is where they live, among the stables, barns, and phony buildings of an old rundown movie location 20 miles from Los Angeles. They called themselves the family. Five members are now in jail on other charges in the desert town of Independence. The family's leader, Charles Manson, is jailed here. It is expected that he will be charged in the Tate murders. A weird homicide. In June of 1970, Charlie Manson and three of his family members went on trial, charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Phil Hartman watched the local news coverage on TV, but not coverage of the actual trial. He watched coverage of the protests that was happening outside the courthouse, which is how he saw her. 
It had been years, but he recognized his former Westchester High classmate and fellow drama geek right away. He knew that face. They were calling her Squeaky now, but Phil knew her by her given name, Lynette Frome. Lynette Frome was now Squeaky, a name given to her by her new friends, the friends she was defending now. Friends united by something unspeakable, something so depraved and so wicked it could hardly be comprehended. Phil couldn't believe what he was seeing. His old friend, Lynette Frome, protesting in defense of that monster. And to think that they had once been on the same path together, fellow actors and artists, and now, at the dawn of the 1970s, that path diverged somewhere in the woods, and Lynette Frome, aka Squeaky, took the path less traveled, a path painted with blood and pulsing with evil. As he watched Lynette defend Crazy Charlie for all to see, Phil had one thought in his head. Darkness is descending on the movement. And that darkness never went away. It settled in. It took root. And 20 years later, it was still there, casting its shadow from Spawn Ranch all the way out into Mammoth Mountain, from the halls of Westchester High up to the sleepy suburbs of Encino. And on May 28, 1998, as the sun began to rise in the west, the Pacific lapping the soft shores, surfers scanning the horizon for the big one, the darkness did what darkness does. It descended. Manson changed everything. Los Angeles locked its doors and left the lights on at night. Social circles tightened up. Baseball bats next to beds, hammers hidden beneath pillows, and everyone got guns. Even Phil Hartman. It was like a window had been left open and for days, months, years even, it had been fine. And nothing happened. But then one day, evil slipped through that crack between the sill and the sash from one world into another, an evil that had been there all along, unsuspected, undetected, unseen by everyone. And now that it was here, it was here to stay. It was inside your head, but you carried on with life. What else could you do? For Phil Hartman, that meant work. And in the early to mid seventies, that work was briefly graphic design at a Santa Monica ad agency. But advertising was too stuffy, too corporate. Phil was rock and roll to his core. He was a better fit at his brother's music agency on Sunset, working out of Alfred Hitchcock's former offices where he designed album covers. Yes, the Phil Hartman was the artist behind many album covers in the 1970s for major records by bands like Poco and America. You know, a horse with no name, those dudes. He even designed the logo that Crosby, Stills, and Nash used for decades. No shit. Work didn't have to feel like work. Work could lead to peace and to love. Phil tried to find love in a postman's in California. He fell in love fast and hard, but it was the part after the falling that he struggled with. 
His first marriage barely lasted two years. Love, peace, both so fleeting, so elusive. It was hard to tell if the peaceful, easy feeling that the Eagles were singing about on the radio had actually been there at all in the first place, before the darkness came crashing down, or if it was just a product of his imagination. Peace wasn't just physically getting away from everything, although in his later years, Phil reveled in the serenity and silence of solo trips to Catalina Island. Peace was putting on a mask. Peace was playing a character. And not just playing a character, but being buried in a character. The deeper the burial, the better. There was no vulnerability when you were someone else. You didn't have to reveal who you really were or what you were really feeling. You didn't have to reveal shit. Playing characters was what Phil did. As a kid doing Shakespeare and Moliere at school, and now as an adult, picking up roles where he could, like a local production of The Music Man. His discovery by chance of a new improv group called The Groundlings at a small theater in East Hollywood was kismet. The Groundlings meant more roles, more characters, and therefore more peace. He helped others with their characters too, like this skinny kid named Paul Rubens, who transformed into the bowtie-wearing man-child Pee Wee Herman. Phil pushed forward, onward, upward, deeper into character. It was 1975. Everything was about to change. Lynette Squeaky Fromm stood out. She was wearing all red. Red like high alert. Red like blood. She was out for blood and justice. Justice for what they had done to Charlie or for what they were now doing to the environment. Something like that. Didn't matter. She just felt in her bones that justice could be exacted by spilling the blood of the leader of the free world. Free. Ha. <laughs> what a crock. Lynette knew there was no free anymore, and there never had been. Just darkness. Darkness was her, and she was it. She hid it well, cloaked beneath her bright red dress. She felt for the Colt 45 strapped to her thigh, cold against her skin, but temperatures in Sacramento were warm mid-80s. Was she walking with the gun or was the gun walking with her? She couldn't tell. Was she going to use it? She wasn't sure. Could she do it? Would she do it? She had no answers to these questions. She just had to go ahead and find out. She pushed her way through the crowd and watched as President Gerald Ford made his way out of his hotel and across Capitol Park toward the state Capitol building flanked by Secret Service, surrounded by regular people, but not people like her. These people were sheep, sheep that wanted to shake the hand of a wolf, lemmings desperate to rub elbows with a charlatan, an actor, a man who didn't care about anything besides himself. He didn't care about the air of the trees. He didn't care about Charlie, that once in a lifetime soul. And for a moment, Lynette's thoughts drifted back to that soul, to her guru, to her saint, to her Charlie. She felt such an overpowering connection to him. She shook it off. Focus. She got closer. Look at him. Gerald Ford wasn't even a person. Fucking smile and that posture. He looked like a cardboard cutout of what a person should look like. I have to do this, Lynette thought. This is the time. This was for the Redwoods and for Charlie, sitting alone in some dank prison cell for the rest of his natural life. This was what the fucking president and his minions and blind followers all chose to ignore. 
Lynette pushed people aside and got closer. She reached down to remove the Colt 45 from the holster. She raised it, and just as she was about to pull the trigger, she was clocked by a Secret Service agent who leapt at her with full force. Within seconds, she was on the ground, tackled, and the gun was wrestled from her hand. President Ford was rushed away to safety. To the darkness, it was nothing but a momentary interruption. Lynette Squeaky Fromm's second appearance on national television for the attempted assassination of President Ford in September of 1975 happened the same year as her former friend Phil Hartman's induction into the Groundlings and over a decade before Phil made his debut on Saturday Night Live. And by that time, the 1986-1987 season in which Phil became an SNL cast member, Lynette was back in the news again. This time because she broke out of the West Virginia women's prison where she was serving a life sentence. She said she was trying to get to Charlie Manson. And Lynette was quickly captured and her search for her one-time guru came to an end. Phil Hartman, meanwhile, found what he was looking for. Peace. He found it inside countless characters at SNL. Unfrozen caveman lawyer, the anal retentive chef, Sinatra, Iacocca, McMahon, Reagan, Clinton, and Trump. And for eight seasons, he was a Clydesdale. He was the greatest utility player in the show's history, and I say that as an extreme compliment. He held everything together. To the rest of the cast, he wasn't Phil, he was the glue. The other not ready for primetime players chanted for him like cheerleaders at the big game. Glue, 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 glue. SNL's creator and executive producer, Lauren Michaels, once said that, quote, Phil has done more work that's touched greatness than probably anybody else who's ever been here, unquote. And it wasn't just SNL. Phil continued to be the glue on shows like The Simpsons and News Radio, and in movies with Steve Martin and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But the success was bittersweet. He wasn't a breakout star like Carvey or Farley or Sandler. It was the everyman capable of anything. The everyday Eddie. It was easy to take him for granted because he was always there and was always solid. And that said, his level of success was greater than most in the entertainment industry. Greater than most ever achieve. It afforded him cars and boats and the things he used to chase down moments of peace. And it bought him the house in Encino that he shared with his third wife, Bryn. Phil called it the Ponderosa on account of the Ponderosa pine ceiling beams inside. The master bedroom alone was bigger than the place he'd lived in before. It looked like a sanctuary hiding in plain sight, an oasis of calm lined with sycamores, oaks, redwoods, and Chinese elms. But it was more than a sanctuary. It was a place to keep secrets, like the one tucked safely away in the metal lockbox on a closet shelf inside that sprawling master bedroom. A secret was supposed to help guard against the darkness, but instead welcomed it inside. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Phil and Bryn Hartman saw it as soon as they pulled into their driveway. A manila envelope nailed to the garage door, not taped, not left in the mailbox or on the ground near the front door, nailed to the garage door. It was bulky and 
awkward. It was meant to be. It was meant to stick out, like Squeaky Fromm dressed in all red amid the throng at Capitol Park. Phil took the envelope down and opened it. Inside was a video cassette and a note. And the note demanded $25,000 ASAP or the contents of the tape would be released to the public. A public that had come to love Phil Hartman for what they perceived him to be. A team player, a solid guy, a loving husband of nearly 10 years to his gorgeous third wife, and a dependable father who doted on his two small children. You know, the glue. The people who planted the envelope wanted the public to watch as the glue came apart at the seams. Not because Phil Hartman wasn't who he said he was, and not because he deserved it, but simply because the blackmailer saw a way to exploit a celebrity in order to get what they wanted. Because the darkness can't help but see light and want to smother it in shadows. Phil and Bryn took the tape inside and popped it into the VCR. Phil hit play. The TV fluttered with black and white static as the tape started up. And then, on the screen, they watched as footage from what seemed to be a hidden camera played. Very clearly, they could see Phil sitting inside the body shop, a notorious strip club on Sunset Boulevard, as a nude dancer writhed on his lap. Sitting next to him was another blonde bombshell. The blackmailer's intent was to expose Phil Hartman as a cheater, an unfaithful pussyhound, a man who in reality bore zero resemblance to the clean-cut family man persona he so effortlessly represented. But there was one big problem with the blackmailer's intent. The blonde smoke show sitting next to Phil at the club was Bryn, his wife. This wasn't a gotcha moment. Phil wasn't cheating. Phil was at the club with his wife and with another couple that he thought he could trust, acquaintances, friends. And now those so-called friends were taking advantage of Phil for a stupid opportunistic cash grab. Unbelievable. Phil picked up the phone. He dialed the blackmailer's number. And before they answered, Phil found some peace. He put on a mask and he buried himself in a character. The character was a man who would do whatever the blackmailer wanted and he'd do it happily. Sure, sure, no problem. I'll get you the money, friendo. Where did you say you wanted to deliver to? What, what time? Of course, of course. See you there. Then Phil hung up and dialed another number. This call was made to a, let's say, persuasive type. Capable, even. A guy that one of Phil's friends said looked just like Luca Brasi from The Godfather. A guy that Joe Rogan, Phil's former co-star on news radio, said was a quote-unquote dangerous person. Whoever that guy was, a private eye or muscle for hire, he went and met with Phil's blackmailer in Phil's place and told him in no uncertain terms that very bad things would happen to them if he ever fucked with the Hartmans again. The Hartmans had their own problems to worry about. Phil wanted Bryn to get help for her on-again, off-again cocaine and alcohol habit. Bryn wanted Phil to stop smoking weed alone in his office and instead focus on how he was going to help her with her own acting career. He said he'd make introductions, ask around. He didn't. She started taking Zoloft, but it didn't keep the resentment from rising. And it didn't stop the fights. Fights that Phil told his friends about. Fights that frequently got nasty. And when they got nasty, Phil smoked a joint and took a nap. Bryn, on the other hand, did a line and got more worked up. She got pissed. She got pissed when Phil's second wife sent them a card to congratulate them on the birth of their son. 
She got pissed when Phil received fan mail. She got pissed when Phil tooled around Catalina on his boat. And what was he really doing? And who was he really with? And where was her piece? Where could she go to disappear? The drugs, the jealousy, the resentment, the attention Phil received for his work, the patronizing attention Bryn received merely for looking attractive on Phil's arm and nothing else, it all built up and it calcified. Phil buried himself in other people, and when that didn't work, he turned onto his side and went to sleep, until the day when he didn't wake up. May 28, 1998, 6 a.m. Ron Douglas, the Studio City stuntman and former drug buddy of Bryn Hartman, put Bryn's 38 Smith & Wesson, the one that spilled out of her Prada bag, into a plastic bag for safekeeping. It had been a few hours since she showed up at Ron's unannounced in a frantic and inebriated state. She said she now felt sober enough to drive back to her house in Encino, but only if he followed her back in his car. She wanted to prove to him that it was true, that she had really done what she said she did, that she killed Phil. Ron still didn't fully believe her, but he agreed to caravan back to her place. A few minutes later, Ron pulled his car up to the Hartman's home and put it in park. The neighborhood was quiet. He stepped out of the car, carrying Bryn's 38 in the plastic bag. He followed her inside, and they entered through the garage. The house was just as quiet as outside. Ron assumed the kids were still sleeping. They made their way down a long hallway and into the master bedroom. And there, lying on the bed, was Phil, bullet hole in his head. Bryn began to scream. Ron started to fully process what he was seeing. Though in shock, he went into action mode. He stepped out of the bedroom, found the nearest phone, and dialed 911. From inside the bedroom, Bryn shut the double doors and locked them. Ron yelled to her to come out. She didn't. Ron still had her gun safely in his hands. But he didn't think it was a good idea for her to be locked in a room with her dead husband all the same. He tried to handle, but no luck. He couldn't get the doors to budge. He listened as Bryn continued to cry hysterically, and he watched as the first rays of the morning sun started to creep from the bottom of the double doors, struggling in vain to usher out the darkness. We begin with a murder investigation that has stunned the entertainment world. Murder investigation. Stunned the entertainment world. Phil Hartman, who rose to fame on Saturday Night Live, was found shot to death today. Shot to death today. Shot to death today inside his home in Southern California. But the story was still unfolding when police arrived on the scene. As the couple's children were being removed from the home, Hartman's wife shot herself. Hartman's wife shot herself. In what is looking now more and more like a murder-suicide. At 6.20 this morning, residents of this upscale Encino neighborhood called police to report gunshots coming from the Hartman's gated estate. Officers arrived to find a nine-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl by the front door. As they were taking the children out of the house, officers heard a gunshot in the master bedroom. There they discovered comedian Phil Hartman dead. Authorities say it appears his wife Bryn shot him, then turned the gun on herself. Turned the gun on herself. On herself. On herself. On herself. On herself. On herself. 
Mr. Hartman had been dead for a while. Dead for a while. He did not die, die uh, uh, at the at same, the same time, time that, that, that Mrs. Hartman apparently killed herself. herself. But certainly any time our officers enter a location, if there are children present, they are our first consideration, removing children from potentially dangerous situations. And that's what the officers did. Bryn Hartman wasn't listening to her friend Ron Douglas yell at her from the other side of the locked double doors. She was busy removing the metal lockbox from the shelf inside the master bedroom's closet once more. She opened it and pulled out the other gun, her Charter Arms 38. While LAPD were busy safely removing her two young children from the house, Bryn crawled into her king-sized bed right next to her dead husband whom she had shot in the neck the chest and the head some three hours ago. She propped herself up with a pillow, and then she stuck the barrel of the charter arms in her mouth and pulled the trigger. According to the coroner's report, Bryn Hartman's blood contained traces of cocaine and therapeutic levels of Zoloft and a blood alcohol content of 0.11%, well over California's legal limit of 0.08%. No drugs were found in Phil's system. Some blamed Bryn's actions on the combination of Coke and Zoloft, and some blamed Coke and alcohol. Some just wanted something or someone to blame for such a senseless tragedy. Bryn's brother blamed Pfizer. He brought a wrongful death lawsuit on behalf of the Hartman's children and their parents' estates against the maker of Zoloft, along with the doctor who prescribed it, arguing that Bryn did not have major clinical depression and therefore the drug did her more harm than good. Pfizer settled privately out of court. John Lovitz, Phil's close friend and former SNL classmate, blamed Andy Dick, one of Phil's co-stars on news radio. Lovitz thought Dick was an enabler. He once gave Bryn cocaine at a party at Phil's house at a crucial moment when she was trying to stay clean. And Andy Dick claimed he had no idea that she struggled with addiction, but John Lovitz didn't buy it. And years later, still mourning the loss of his friend, John Lovitz grabbed Andy Dick by his shirt and slammed his head into the bar at the Laugh Factory. Did kicking Andy Dick's ass make John Lovitz feel better? Probably. But it didn't dull the pain of losing Phil Hartman. And it didn't bring him or his wife back. It also didn't restore peace and love to a world that had long before slipped into shadow. 11 years after Phil's death, Lynette's squeaky foam slipped past the razor wire fences of a federal prison and into a car waiting for her on the outside. But she wasn't escaping again. This time, she left legally. After serving more than three decades of her life sentence, the one-time Manson family member, would-be presidential assassin, and former friend of Phil Hartman was released on parole. In 2019, during an interview with ABC's Nightline, Squeaky was asked if she was in love with Charlie Manson. Oh yeah, she responded. I still am. I don't think you fall out of love. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. 
If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.